A glorious band, the chosen few on whom the Spirit came. To valiant saints, their hopes they knew and mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, a lion's glory. Hi everyone, this is Kevin Annett, Eagle's Strong Voice. You're listening to Here We Stand, the voice of the Republic of Canada and the Global Resistance Movement. Well, little children being killed and thrown into a ditch, the murder of anyone investigating it, how an entire global police state can emerge from those crimes, you'd think that would be a matter of some concern for folks. And I often say to people, if you're not concerned about that, you have no basis to complain about what's happening to you today the loss of your rights or anything else, because over the years we have all contributed to this mess. And so it's our obligation, and it's in our own best interest, to understand where it all came from and to join the ranks of the people fighting this global tyranny and the genocide from which it sprouted. Well, today, on Here We Stand, we're going to do that as we head into the momentous months of 2023, the latter part of the year, especially in the fall when the global reclamation campaign is really charging up. Indigenous elders across Turtle Island have formally banished and evicted the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches from their territories and are reclaiming the properties, the buildings, the land, and the wealth of those genocidal churches under international law and their own tribal law. We're actively involved in that movement. I've been personally involved in those reclamations, and we'll be having live coverage from those events in the months to come, along with many other related things, which you can follow at murderbydecree.com 
under ITCCS updates. But today we're going to give necessary background, taken entirely from the personal experiences of eyewitnesses, including me, over the years who have documented and through our own struggle and pain and loss, given testimony to all that you're about to hear. The first reflection and, and sharing I want to do is from a real event that happened. All of these are based on real events, real people. It's entitled, How the Fix Began, Sweeping Up the Little Bones. And this is about how the first cover-up of the residential school death camps, the mass graves and the killing of children over the generations, how it was formally covered up by the United Catholic and Anglican churches and their Aboriginal accomplices among the government fund of Native puppet chiefs. This particular story took place on Sunday, April 14, 1996, in Port Alberni, on the West Coast. With a foresight unusual for United Church of Canada bureaucrats, Marion Best and Virginia Coleman of the General Counsel Office have convened a secret meeting with top officials of the West Coast New Chelmsford Tribal Council. These Tribal Council chiefs have just commenced the first major class action lawsuit against the United Church for the crimes committed by them against little children at the Alberni Indian Residential School. Marion Best and Virginia Coleman have brought along their checkbook. The confidential conclave is not without a touch of irony, since it takes place at St. Andrew's United Church, the former clerical abode of the Reverend Kevin D. Annett, who was recently fired without cause and now faces defrocking by the same top church officers after he began asking questions about stolen native land and missing and murdered Native children. Unfortunately for Marion Best and Virginia Coleman, one of Kevin's friends, Reverend Bruce Gunn, is present that night at the secret meeting with the West Coast Chiefs. Like the proverbial fly in the wall or snake in the grass, depending on your point of view, Bruce Gunn later gives to the sadder but wiser Kevin Annett a blow-by-blow -blow account of what went on at that historic meeting. The buck that evening stops with Virginia Coleman, who is General Secretary of the United Church, brandishes an offer she is sure that chubby tribal council chieftains will not refuse. In her words, quote, The United Church is willing to provide some monetary compensation to a limited number of former Indian residential school students, but there are two conditions to our offer. The first condition is that you must agree to restrict your litigation to issues of personal injury and not matters of a criminal nature, such as the alleged killing of students. And the second condition is that you must disassociate yourselves from Kevin Annett and from his claims of murders in the Alberni Indian Residential School, unquote. Well, our faithful observer Bruce Gunn was surprised by the speed with which the Aboriginal leaders were bought and gobbled up that deal on the terms of the criminal. Nelson Keatla, Cliff Atlio, and all the other tribal council brass who were present that evening swallowed what was offered to them as dutifully as they had the mush and the maggots served to them as children in the local res school. But not before requesting for themselves an added sweetener into the deal in the form of monetary benefits that would be part of the backroom arrangement. Well, not surprisingly, there was a general atmosphere of joy and reconciliation prevailing afterwards among both the pale and brown-skinned aficionados who were present that night. Unfortunately, the same spirit did not extend to anyone outside their little cozy arrangement, especially Kevin Annan and his family, who were in the process of being destroyed at that same moment by the same church leaders, or by the thousands of residential school survivors who could now expect, at best, 
a few drops of blood money, and a gag order. Well, those rare Canadians who wonder why no Aboriginal politician has ever called for the criminal prosecution of the churches that killed over 60,000 of their own relatives should remember that Port Alberni meeting of April 14, 1996. For that night's arrangement set the pattern for the subsequent concealment of genocide in Canada by the churches that did the killing and by their willing Aboriginal accomplices who call themselves First Nations leaders. Well, part two to this story is all about land. And it's entitled, It's All About the Real Estate, Mate, What They Didn't Teach You in Sunday School. Well, there was a man called John Kishore. He was a United Church minister and a government, provincial government minister. And a decade before he'd learned to fear me, he was actually the first one to congratulate me on my maiden sermon I gave at Vancouver's First United Church, where he pastored in that fall of 1986. What he said to me was kind of ironic. He said, if all your sermons are that good, Kevin, you'll have an outstanding career in the United Church. He lived to regret his remark after he became a provincial government minister. As for me, my anticipated longevity as a professional God-talker never came off. But I did learn how to give crooked politicians like John Kishore many sleepless nights. The guy's particular insomnia was caused during the summer of 1994, when I was still a minister in Port Alberni, when I discovered a lucrative insider deal that he had cooked up. John Kishore used his position as an NDP cabinet minister to profit the provincial government's corporate partner, the big logging company, McMillan Blodell while protecting his own United Church of Canada from a potentially disastrous public scandal. It was all about old-growth cedar trees and the children's remains they conceal. In 1903, a man very much like John Kishore arrived on the stormy west coast of Vancouver Island in the ancestral homeland of the Ahousan natives. The man's name was John Ross. As a Presbyterian missionary, he was given by the British Crown the power of a cop, a magistrate, and an Indian agent all rolled into one. With this multiple authority, Ross set up what became the United Church's Ahousat Indian Residential School, where over half of the local children died. A death rate higher than that of the Auschwitz death camp, by the way. The zealous John Ross arrested any Ahousat who wouldn't incarcerate their children in this death trap called a residential school. And in the process, he also stole a big chunk of the Ahousa people's land. John's multiple ro role as a priest, a child trafficker, a land grabber, and a magistrate wasn't all that unusual when one considers that his Presbyterian church and his dis its descendant, the United Church of Canada, were handed huge swaths of indigenous land by the British crown, as were the Catholics and the Anglicans. These same churches were also conferred with the legal power of, of a bank and a land broker and were placed outside the jurisdiction of Canadian courts and the law. After all, how else do civilized Christians, so-called, ensure that all of those lucrative forests and fishing grounds end up in the right pale hands? John Ross was an efficient multitasker. Within a few weeks of his arrival, the Ahousets had been corralled into church and into residential school and their traditional chiefs locked up in jail by Ross and his band of Indian constables. 
Not coincidentally, the richest housed land and its old growth cedar trees were also brought into the fold of what became the United Church of Canada, once it was formed by an act of parliament in 1925. Unfortunately for John Ross, he was forced to hurriedly leave town one spring day in 1909 when he was implicated in the, in the death of a child at the residential school. The dead girl was one Carrie George, age eight, who happened to be the only daughter of Ross's chief adversary, traditional leader McQuinna George. John Ross had threatened McQuinna that his children would never live to see adulthood, and sure enough. Well, John Ross's legacy remained. In 1952, the United Church began selling off the stolen house of land to their big financial backers, including the logging company McMillan Blodell. And in 1994, that company was signed, to, signed away the house of land to the biggest lumber multinational company in the world, the Seattle-based Weyerhaeuser Limited, which eventually bought up McMillan Blodell. And my old buddy and fan, John Kishore, secretly arranged the deal thanks to his government office the biggest corporate takeover in British Columbia history, worth well over $2 billion. Well, naturally, the Ahousad natives never got a penny from that deal. Besides lining the usual pockets, the arrangement carefully shielded the United Church's bloody history and land grab from public scrutiny. End of story? Ooh, far from it. Enter yours truly. I stumbled my way into the whole sordid mess while I was still a minister, in Port Alberni, in October 1994, after I learned about it from one of Chief McQuinn's descendants, Earl George, a traditional Ahousad elder who often came to my services in my Port Alberni church. Well, I exclaimed to now wait just a darn minute. In a stunningly naive letter I wrote to my United Church bosses in Toronto, after getting the, down the lowdown from Earl about the Ahousad deal, including how the church had made big bucks off selling off what was known as Lot 363. As I said to the church leaders, hey, we're not supposed to profit off stolen native land. It says so in our own church policy manual. <laughs> oh, the gullibility of youth. John Kishore's personal role in tossing me from my pulpit and destroying my livelihood and my family surfaced in the years following my rapid and unceremonious cashiering out of the United Church of Canada in the first and only public defrocking of a minister in the United Church history, to a tune of $300,000. As all co-conspirators tend to do under pressure, one of the local church officers who had arranged my firing, one Wynne Stokes, spilled the beans at the United Church can Kangaroo Court delisting hearing that robbed me of my profession and livelihood. Under cross-examination, uh, cross by me, and in an obvious effort to cover his own ass and shift the blame, Stokes blurted out that John Kishore had insisted on my expulsion from the church after saying, quote, we can't have Annette upset the apple cart over the Ahousad land deal, unquote. Stokes admitted that Kishore had also made sure that Ahousad elder Earl George never completed his approved training for United Church ministry, and he did that by having all of his funding for that training cancelled by the church and by the local tribal council. Well, of course, that's business as usual in the great white north, but none of it sat right with me, having still not fully awoken to the way things are and what I was part of. And so soon after my expulsion from the United Church early in 1995, I indignantly sought out one H.A.D. Oliver, a retired provincial court judge who had recently been appointed the commissioner to investigate charges of conflict of interest by British Columbia politicians. 
With an earnestness that can only come from being blindfolded, I brought to Mr. Oliver all the proof that John Kishore had used his public office to profit and protect his associates in both Weyerhaeuser and the United Church. I should have guessed what the rotund Mr. Oliver would say the moment I was ushered into his presence in a Vancouver boardroom. Oliver listened with an amused smirk as I laid out the facts to him. His lordship only interrupted me once to comment that he too was a United Church member. But seeing that I still didn't get it, Mr. Oliver finally sat back after I was done and said to me with a typical insider's grin, Oh, come now, Kevin, you don't really believe there's a separation of church and state in this country, do you? And that was that. As for the Housed people, no, they never got their land back, and most of them never saw a penny of the mega profits squeezed out of those legions of slaughtered cedar trees. Those profits went, in part, to their puppet chiefs who had sold them out. Guys like Cliff Atlio, father of the future Assembly of First Nations Grand Chief puppet leader Sean Tonto Atlio, who personally made a bundle through his own logging company called Lissac Limited that has wiped out the last of the old-growth cedar trees on Vancouver Island. I hear that John Kishore still turns very apoplectic whenever my name is mentioned. But hell, John, that's the price you pay for civilization. And uh, to make it even more human, this is about Maisie Shaw, a little girl who lived from 1932 to 1946. I was asked one recent Yuletide to write a story and an article about Maisie Shaw, age 14, who was killed in Port Alberni on Christmas Eve of 1946 by so-called Reverend Alfred Caldwell of the United Church. I declined the offer saying, it's all being said already and mostly by me. But people have to be reminded, insisted the caller. Why should they have to be, I answered. Alfred Caldwell went to his own grave, convinced that he had kicked little Maisie Shaw to her death for her own good. After all, she'd been crying for her mother and had inconvenienced Mr. Caldwell. His United Church, which is still open for business and doing just fine, thank you very much, stepped around her little corpse even more adeptly, just like they've stepped around the corpses of 60,000 other children just like Maisie. Nobody loses any sleep over her or any of them. None of this ever changes because the problem is closer than we think. Evil is not a foreign thing, said H.L. Mencken. Evil lives right next door to us and even inhabits the same bed as us. And so I say to people who often refer to themselves as being, quote, awake, well, you may be somewhat awake, but you're still lying in the same bed as the beast, aren't you now? Time to get up. Well, to show you what happened, this is another reflection about, I call Nativity 1994. It was my last Christmas service in Port Alberni at St. Andrew's United Church, just a month before I was fired without cause or notice by two anonymous officials, Art Anderson and Cameron Reed, who destroyed my life. The last Christmas we were all together hangs over memory like the fog did that year in the Yelburnie Valley. It was a time of gathering, two years and more of labor summoning so many together where once there were only a few, and it was a time of ending. The church stewards had warned me to expect an overflow crowd at the Christmas Eve service, and like overgrown elves, they had busied themselves 
Around the building, stringing wires and sound systems in the unheated auditorium kept that way to save money. The snows had come early to the Alberni Valley, and our food bank was already depleted. With my eldest daughter, Claire, who was only five years old, I had walked to the church one morning in the week before Christmas, pondering the cold and the sermon, when I met the one who would pierce the fog for us. The woman stood patiently at the locked door, her brown Aboriginal eyes relaxing as we approached. Her bare hand gestured at me. You're that minister, ain't you? She exclaimed as my daughter Claire fell back in fear and clutched my hand. Before I could answer, the stranger smiled and nodded and uttered with noticeable pleasure at her double entendre, They say you give it out seven days a week. I smiled too, gripping Claire's hand reassuringly and replying, well, if you're referring to food, we're a bit short right now, but you're welcome to whatever's left. She nodded again and waited until I locked the door and picked up Claire, who was clinging to me by then. The basement was even more frigid than the outside air. But the woman doffed her torn overcoat and sighed loudly as we approached the food bank locker. For all the good it'll do, she said, as I unlocked the pantry and surveyed the few cans and bags left on the shelves. I turned and really looked at her for the first time. She was younger than she had sounded, but a dark, cancerous growth marred her upper lip and a deep scar ran down her face and neck. I'm sorry, there, there's none more, I, I began, since back then I still saw things in terms of giving. But she shook her head, and instead of saying anything, she looked at Claire, and the two of them exchanged a smile for the first time. I stared confused at the cupboard so bare. She finally said to me, the people in your church, you know what they need? I set Claire down and shook my head. They need him. They sing about him and pretend they know him, but shit, they wouldn't spot him even if he came up and bit him on their ass. I smiled at that one and even dared a mild chuckle. You doing a Christmas play for the kids? She continued. Yeah. I bet it's the usual bullshit with the angels and shepherds, right? I nodded. That don't mean nothing to those people. Why don't you do a story about, like, if he came to Port Alberni to be born right now. I finally laughed, feeling oddly relieved. She smiled too, walked over to the shelves and picked up a small bag of rice. Donning her coat, she nodded her thanks and said, My best, my bet is him and Mary and Joseph, they'd end up in the Petrocan garage down a river road. The owner there lets us all sleep in the back sometimes. And then she was gone. I didn't try explaining the stranger to anyone or what her words had done to me. All I did was lock the food cupboard and lead Claire up to my office, where I cranked up the heat and set her to drawing. And then I sat at my desk and I wrote for the rest of the day. The kids in church were no problem at all, since they got it immediately. The Indians who were in the pews that Christmas Eve, alongside all the dour white folks, took to the amateur performance like they had written it themselves. They laughed with familiarity as the Holy Family was turned away by the local cops and hotel owners and by church after church after church. It was mostly the official Christians who were shocked into open-mouthed incredulity at the coming of life, coming to, to life of something they thought they knew all about. As the children spoke their lines, I swear I saw parishioners jump like there were tacks scattered on the pews. Joe, I'm getting ready to have this kid. You'd better find us a place real friggin' quick. I'm trying, Mary, but Jehovah, nobody will answer their door. Guess it's because we're lowlifes. Oh, look, there's a church up ahead. I bet they'll help us. If you believe the Bible, whoever he was loved to poke fun at his listeners and shock them out of their fog. Our play would have made him proud. 
as the eight-year-old girl who played Mary pleaded fruitlessly for help from a kid adorned in oversized clerical garb and was covered in scorn by the young priest, a sad moan arose from the congregation. But things took a turn when Mary and Joseph came upon an Indian played by one of the local Aboriginal kids. Sir, will you help us? My wife's going to have a baby. Sure, replied the native kid from experience. I got a spot in the shed behind the food mart. The owner lets us all sleep in there. And in a contrived scene of boxes and cans scattered where a communion table normally stood, Mary had her baby, as little homeless guys with fake beards and a stray res dog looked on. And one of the men urged Mary to keep her newborn quiet lest the Mounties hear his cries and bust everyone for vagrancy. Voices were subdued that night in the church hall over coffee, cooks, cookies, and Christmas punch, and the normally dull gazes and banal remarks of the season were oddly absent. The Aboriginal people kept nodding at me and smiling, saying little and not having to. The children were happy too, still in costume and playing with the local stray who had posed as a res dog in the performance that would always be talked about. It was the pale parishioners who seemed most pregnant that night, but they couldn't speak of it. It was one of my last services with them, and somehow they all knew it, since we had all entered the story by then. For a churchly King Herod had heard a rumor and dispatched assassins to stop a birth and me, even though it was already too late. My daughter Claire was not running and rolling with the other kids, but in her manner joined me quietly with her younger sister Eleanor in tow. Our trio stood there amidst the thoughtful looks and unspoken love as person after person came to us, and they grasped our hands and embraced us with glistening eyes. An aging woman named Alma Van Beek, who normally gave me only a slight nod after church, struggled towards me in her walker and pressed her trembling lips on my cheek. She stammered something in her Dutch native tongue as the tears fell unashamedly from both of us. Later, when we were all scattered and lost, I would recall that moment like no other, as if something in Alma's tears washed away all the filth and loss that were to follow. Perhaps that looming nightfall touched my heart just then, for I gave a shudder as I looked at my daughters, almost glimpsing the coming divorce, and I held them both close to me as if that would keep them safe and near to me forever. The snow was falling as we left the darkened building, kissing us gently as it had done years before, when as a baby Claire had struggled with me on a toboggan through the deep drifts of my first posting in Pearson, Manitoba, on another Christmas Eve. The quiet flakes blessed us with memory and settled in love on the whole of creation, even on the secret and unmarked graves of children at the Alberni Residential School just down the road. The old Byzantine icon depicts Jesus as a baby, hugging his worried mother as she stares ahead into his bloody future. Her eyes turned in grief to the viewer, while his adoring eyes seek only her past the moment, past even his own death. That image may still hang in the basement of my church, where I left it. And it carries on, friends. I'm going to take a break, because I'm about to cry. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Kevin and Eagle Strong Boys, back again. Carrying on on a personal vein, this is about Ricky Lavalle, my friend, who lived from 1960 to 2012, who is a living eyewitness to the death camps that caused genocide against so many children. He went through it, and he was killed for it, for speaking out. His eyes never stayed on anyone for more than a split second. 
He seemed always ready to run despite his considerable weight. But Ricky Lavalley was always at my side when we confronted the ones who had made him that way. And he never wavered. Not until the very day he died, he never wavered. Ricky refused to forget or to forgive. His tears always flowed, and he described how his five-year-old brother was killed by an electric cattle prod held by a priest at the Catholic Portage La Prairie Residential School. Like most other survivors, and certainly as a homeless man, Rick could have created the usual excuses to justify staying away from our battles with cops and clergy, as down the years we fought impossibly for justice. More than anyone, Rick had enough reason to hide, like so many other people do, but he never did hide. I once marched with Rick and just eight other people down Vancouver's busiest downtown street during rush hour traffic, bearing the banner that he clung to like his memories, and it read, All the children need a proper burial. As passers-by yelled at us, gawked at our little army, or lurched away to bring themselves to a stop to let us pass, I turned to Ricky and yelled, How are we doing, Rick? He smiled, which was rare, and he shouted back cheerfully, We're doing fucking great! The traffic-stopping march by We Few had been Ricky's idea. He was also beside me the morning we occupied the Catholic Cathedral in Vancouver during his Palm Sunday service in March 2008. I recall how Rick gazed solidly at the priest who was screaming at us and threatening us, and finally he said to the red-faced idiot, When are you going to give me back my brother's body? Before we were banned from the airwaves of the former Vancouver Co-op Radio, now a muzzled and privatized subsidiary of the corporate Patterson Media Group, Ricky regularly regaled our listeners with tales of life on the streets and his time in the death camp called Residential School. Sometimes he'd sing his latest creation as he strummed on a three-string guitar he kept lying around the studio. But his best moments were with his fellow survivors of church torture when they faltered on the air and broke down in a flood of the same dark memories that Ricky bore so bravely. That's okay, that's okay, he'd say to them softly as he gave them a big hug. It's okay, we'll get those bastards. And then he'd shout into the microphone, Screw those churches! Well, we did screw them in ways they weren't expecting, thanks to Ricky Lavalley and a handful like him, thereby incarnating what the same churches preach about but hate in practice. God among them. For Ricky was indeed filled with good things, even as they, the rich, were sent away empty. Rick's great joy was that he was featured in our documentary film Unrepentant, not because it pumped his ego, but from the simple gratification that his brother's murder would now be known to the world. In some small way, that that exposure seemed to make up for all that he had lost and all that he suffered every day. Whenever he spotted me on the grimy streets of East Hastings, Ricky would lumber over and ask me for another few DVDs of our film to hand out to his buddies and relatives. They can't ignore us anymore, can they, Kev? He would routinely ask me with the same guileless look. The last time I ever saw Ricky was just two weeks before he was found dead from a series of blows to his head and chest. He was killed because he had been an eyewitness to the police killing of Johnny Bingo Dawson, another one of our brothers. In the last encounter, we'd bumped into each other at a student occupation of a downtown Vancouver square, where Ricky was leafleting the mostly indifferent young occupiers about our homegrown genocide. Rick never stopped talking about his murder brother to anyone who would listen, and to even those who wouldn't, who were many. The last words Ricky ever said to me were spoken in a hurry that day as I headed off to a meeting. 
he gave me his screwy smile and announced, I'm going to get these little pricks to come with us next time we hit that church. Okay, Kev? Ricky Lavalle left the world in such a spirit as he had lived his final years, resolute and unbroken, despite all his scars and despite all his fears. It's never enough to write about another fallen friend of the stature of Ricky Lavalle or to simply remember him or even to continue on in the cause he died for, as so many have died for. The long loneliness and the lengthening shadows among we fewer and fewer veterans of this campaign is never lessened. But we carry on anyway, remembering, as Ricky always did, of the little ones who suffered and died, and of the ones who will perish today and tomorrow if we let go of our banner, or if we let go of our memories. Well, further in that vein, I want to talk about, on the other end of the spectrum, a very odious individual through whom I first had one of my glimpses into genuine evil. It took me a lot of years, too many really, to figure out where I am. Even an avalanche of clues didn't spartan me up because like every reasonable Canadian, I tried to see only the best in people, including the ones who were trying to destroy me. That began to change after I encountered scary Gary Patterson. I once observed that people get ordained as ministers for the same reason they become comedians, to get others to like them. If that's true, Scary Gary was an exception. He wasn't perched in his pulpit just to seek approval, but to lay down the law, not God's law, of course, but his own. I suppose in that sense he wasn't unlike many clergy who make it to the top of the dung heap they call churches. But Gary had an acidic edge to him that one day burned away another one of my deadly illusions about who and what occupies the helm of the United Church of Canada, and the deed of every major church. I had heard of Patterson before he confronted me outside his St. Andrew's United Church building one Sunday morning. He was a born politician and showman. Some years before, he had proudly donned the mantle of the first, quote, openly gay man ever to be ordained as head into the United Church. Eventually, he was selected as the national moderator of the United Church for that same reason, because of who he slept with. Well, naturally, his elevation was greeted with the usual paroxysms of group self-congratulation by the gaggle of, aren't we just so wonderful, liberal Canadians who occupy United Church of Canada pews. But something was not right. Even an extreme pro-gay groupie or the most obtuse pew-sitter could not help but notice that Gary's smile was so phony, his manner so thin and shifting, that even by church standards, it was clear that something worse than a rat was loose. At least so it seemed to me at the time, when I still believed that people can see through the appearances. That particular morning when Gary's mask slipped, I was standing with my buddy John Graham outside our nemesis, swanky St. Andrew's Wesley United Church in the west end of Vancouver. We were leafleting the preened and pruned parishioners about their group crime. At the time, in the summer of 1997, I had just been publicly defrocked by the, from the United Church by some of Gary's associates. For his part, my buddy, John Graham, was an American Indian Movement veteran on the run from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and hiding out in Vancouver, dodging an FBI warrant after the FBI had set him up for killings that he had never done. As risky as it was for John personally to be there with me, he had insisted, insisted on standing with me that day. 
Those assholes want you dead, Kevin, he said solemnly and with a hidden meaning. He'd been shot at ever since he was a boy, so he knew something about assassins. I didn't see Gary Patterson at first. The guy had been lurking inside the church narthex, no doubt watching us through a glazed window. Then, like a poison dart, he'd launched himself at me. He ran up and screamed in my face, Why don't you get a fucking life, Annette? You're such a pathetic loser! The robed creep scurried off as quickly as he'd arrived, no doubt because good buddy John Graham was striding towards him with blood in his eyes. The moment passed, and John Graham yelled at the departing cleric and then asked me something, but I didn't answer. I was too shocked by what I'd just experienced. Later, I realized that Gary's apparent rage and his vile insults, perhaps his entire life, were, were just stage props for a deeper malevolence whose shadow I'd briefly glimpsed. Because, in the few seconds of his tirade, his pallid eyes had blinked, and something sick and filthy beyond description glared out at me. Whatever that thing was, it sought a way into me. I felt its cold, dead tendril probe at me, savoring my deepest grief and seeking a wound in my heart in which to fester. But then it was gone. In the instant of our contact, I saw much about its nature. I saw its tentacles reaching everywhere around me, feeding off so many other people as it rested securely behind the religious facade that has camouflaged and housed it for thousands of years. Soon I felt John Graham's eyes on me. He seemed to know what had happened and maybe even what awaited both of us, but he remained stone-faced. The Indian stood in sentinel-like silence beside me until I was ready to leave, and then we sat in my car for a while. John Graham said quietly after a while, I can't see those church people. I keep trying to, but they're not there. But you I see. He paused and uncharacteristically put his hand on my arm. I don't think those church people know that they're dead. So, what do I believe anyway, after all of this? One of my uh, congregational members in Port Alberta was a logger named George Leong. He hated environmentalists and he kept his kids away from Indians. He never came to church when he knew they might be there. He also disliked my sermons. You never tell us what to believe, Kev, he complained to me one Sunday during after-church coffee. Is that my job? I replied Socratically. Well, you're the minister after all, he said. If you don't know about God, then who does? <laughs> well, people stopped asking me about God years ago, fortunately. I guess the consensus was that once I was officially defrocked from the United Church, that somehow disqualified me from membership in the God Expert fraternity. But recently that's changed, perhaps because of the success I've had in combating religious group crime. The formerly unspoken question is now being asked of me, what do I think of Jesus anyway? Well, listen up. A little thing I wrote called, what is this thing called the Jubilee, doing more than preaching? And it's based on uh, Luke 4, 14 to 21, if you want to read along. I was four years old when I first helped myself to the bread out of the baker's truck. My mother, always hawk-eyed when it came to me, spotted my deed and confronted me as I calmly sat munching my prize on the sidewalk outside our home. Well, when Mum asked me why I had taken the bread, I said I was hungry. I had no idea why something so obvious needed an explanation, nor did I savvy her attempt to explain the strange concept of money to me. My mother perhaps blamed this early formative moment for my tendency to give away anything in our house that wasn't nailed down to people who needed it more than we did. 
Cutlery, food, toys, clothing, even mom's favorite fondue set ended up in the hands of the local needy families. Mom started locking up everything. And just imagine, back then I hadn't even started reading the Bible. My egalitarian streak intensified when I had scripture revealed to me in Sunday school. There it was in black and white, something I knew at a gut level. God gave creation to all of us. No mention of rich or poor or debt consolidation loans in the Garden of Eden. And even better, not much later in the biblical timeline, the wandering Jews were told by Jehovah that every 50 years they were to pull a Kevin at it and give away what they had to the needy. It was called the Jubilee Law. Land was to be returned to its original owners, debts to be cancelled, and all the prisoners were to be set free. The Jubilee. Well, of course, like all good ideas and divine commands, the Jubilee Law was never put into practice by we sloppy mortals. The recipient of the Jubilee Laws, the tribal Hebrews, instead demanded a king to rule over them and war chariots and other weapons of mass destruction to smash those nasty Canaanites into dust. And for some odd reason, the big-shot kings of Israel conveniently forgot about the world turned upside down by the Jubilee commands and given to them by God personally, the one they supposedly worshipped. Kind of like now, wouldn't you say? But don't despair, people. A few centuries later, in a one-camel dump called Nazareth, there appeared a local yokel named Eshua ben Yusuf, who had the temerity to take the law into his own hands. One morning in the synagogue, amid the usual chattering and gossiping and snoring, Yeshua stood up uninvited and announced, Okay, everybody, I've got news for you. The Jubilees arrived, not in 50 years, not after you've had lunch, but right now, at this very moment, right here. So say farewell to collecting on all those debts owed to you. The prison doors just got flung open. No more land grabbing or interest rates or rich or poor. That's all gone now. We're living under a new regime called the Kingdom of Heaven. Rejoice! Well, with that, the good friends and neighbors of the rabble-rouser grabbed him and tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off a cliff, but that failed. They had to wait a few more years to finally nail him up. Meanwhile, Yeshua the shit disturber, known by his Greek name Jesus, walked about the land establishing a new society. And when he went beyond words and tried getting rid of the biggest barrier to God's jubilee revolution, which was the money-soaked and militarized temple in Jerusalem, well, you know what happened next. And that same fate of crucifixion has befallen all the other poor people like Yeshua who have ever tried to do as he did and as God commands and reclaim the world for themselves and for everyone. That means everyone. When I think back to my young self eating freely and unafraid from the earth's bounty and sharing what I had with others, I'm struck by how inborn and self-evident is the jubilee spirit in humanity. From, from each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs. Karl Marx had the same idea, and the modern movement of communism, not the Stalinized repressive state form, but the basic idea that all the wealth-producing industry needs to be owned collectively by all the people and not by one guy. From each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs. The world was made a common garden without barriers, and society would operate that way if it reflected the mind of God. But since it doesn't, and instead is ruled and torn apart by the satanic force of greed, of war, property, and class divisions, the Jubilee spirit sweeps in periodically to, like a great, beautiful, purifying wind to overturn and return humanity to its source in the natural law, or what would be sometimes called the common law. 
Once our people moved according to the earth's rhythms, we we understood innately that society, like nature, had to routinely rest and lie fallow in order to replenish. Inequality and oppression we have to withdraw from so that natural justice can reassert itself and restore life to everyone. Jubilee wipes the slate clean so that humanity can recover from itself. That's all that Jesus was demonstrating. But we've fallen from that vision and from the revolution Jesus embodied. A crushing wall of might makes right blocks out such liberation. And so a divine blast of change arrives to collapse and clear away all the barriers to God's plan. That often manifests as personal disasters and social disasters, but that's what opens us up to the new. That's indeed the meaning of Jubilee. It comes from the Hebrew word Yobal, which means a trumpet blast, the kind that announces a great event or the arrival of something new, like the final judgment in Revelation. In the book of Leviticus, the people are instructed to, quote, hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty in the land to all the inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee unto you. The saying is inscribed in the American Liberty Bell in Philadelphia and serves as the basis of a true republic under God. The fact that heaven ordains and trumpets justice and equality for all people, every second generation, like Thomas Jefferson said, we need a revolution every generation if the republic is to stay alive. He did better than the Jubilee Laws, in other words. He said it had to happen every 25 years, not every 50. In other words, every new generation. Because the republic, like the earth and its people, has to recreate itself continually or die. The divine plan is for all people to return to a level and equal footing with with one another routinely. But of course, every ruling elite, whether political, financial, or religious, desires and works for the opposite and considers God's equality impractical and subversive. Even call it communistic. Yes, we're a commune of humanity, quite true. Because for many centuries, official Christianity has disregarded their Jubilee Revolution and sided with the rich rulers of this world, that revolution of equality has been voiced historically not by God talkers, but by the bearers of so called atheistic creeds like rationalism, socialism, and communism. But the truth remains whoever speaks it must move from thin words to thick action in order for it to be real and life-giving. If Jesus is actually present among us, he can only be known through a visible social arrangement, a new covenant in which free men and women establish the jubilee equality and renewal in their everyday life. True faith in Jesus' message must be elevated to a social reality and not reduced to a dead ritual or creed. Jesus demonstrated this by literally setting captives free returning land to landless peasants, and canceling the debts of all those who joined his guerrilla jubilee movement. Because like any guerrilla leader, he established liberated zones, first in the mines and then in the, in the surroundings of his people. And in that way, he overturned and began to replace the status quo. And that's the only reason that Jesus was killed. It's the reason he was judicially murdered, not for proclaiming himself to be divine. That all came later. That was all propaganda put in later in the Bible. But didn't proclaim himself divine. He was a man like you and me with a divine message that he embodied. And that's the sacred part of it. He embodied it by what he did. Because in his time and place in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was reserved for political insurrectionists and armed rebels, not for religious heretics. They were stoned to death. Anyone crucified had taken up arms against Rome. 
Today, we find the same struggle play itself out whenever people try to make Jesus' way a reality in our world. The Jubilee vision is a keg of dynamite being deliberately contained within religion. But I know from personal experience, having, tr having tried to make it real in Port Alberni and elsewhere, that when we unleash the dynamite and bring poor and rich together and abolish the differences between them, the full weight of church and state falls on us, just like it did on Jesus. And as he predicted it would when he said, If I have suffered, so too shall you, for you are not greater than me. Today, the Jubilee laws are as necessary, as revolutionary, and as much of a threat to the status quo as they were 2,000 years ago, especially to bankers, to bishops, and heads of state. And so the vision and the purpose remains, beginning by personally sharing out the wealth of the world, and especially the wealth of the church with those who have nothing. And we remembered how the indigenous elders across Canada are embodying that Jubilee message by saying, yes, the churches are abolished. And we are reclaiming their property and lands and wealth as reparations for genocide, but also to reestablish the true wampum treaty of equality between all peoples so that all the wealth and land can be shared equally. The message is universal. But here is the unending challenge. Send out to each of one of you right now. Will we do more than proclaim liberty, but enact it among ourselves as the equal and freeborn men and women that we are? Will we? The proof is in what you do now and every day. Well, the final thing I want to share is, uh, again, personal. It's called A Lesson from My Uncle. My father is the only one in the fading photograph who still draws breath. He was a boy of 15 when the family photo was taken, the day before his eldest brother, Bob, left forever to serve as the youngest officer on the doomed Canadian destroyer, HMCS Athabascan. My young father-to-be stares soberly into the camera, bearing the same troubled look as every other member of his family, save one, 19-year-old Bob Annett himself, whose easy and gentle smile seems untouched by the war that waits to engulf him. One of the sailors who survived the torpedoing of the Athabascan in the early hours of April 29, 1944, recalled how Bob wore the same confident radiance in the dark and icy waters of the English Channel as men died all around him. He remembers that Bob tried leading the ship's survivors in song to keep their spirits alive and to keep them alive as the ship sank and the waters burned with diesel oil. And then in the midst of that carnage, Bob gave up his own life jacket to a wounded man, and soon after my uncle drowned while trying to swim to a carly float. What the surviving sailor and Uncle Bob never knew was that their ship was sunk not by the Germans, but by friendly fire from a nearby British motor torpedo boat, and that undoubtedly to cover their deed, the British Admiralty cancelled all rescue efforts to retrieve the Athabascans, and they left them to drown in the English Channel. Over 100 Canadians, including my uncle, Robert Ivan Lokes Annett. One night last year, I held the Annett family photograph in my hands as my dad sipped on a scotch and recalled his last memory of his brother Bob. Dad said he could have spent his embarkation leave in town, whooping it up or seeing his fiancée, Elaine. But instead, he drove out to see me, his kid brother. And he rose be, roused me out of bed and wrestled with me and cheered me up. He was that kind of a guy. I gazed at the snapshot of the whole family and said, From the looks of all of you, Dad, it looks like you all knew he was going to die. Dad nodded and replied, replied softly with an unashamed awe. 
and look at Bob's smile. Well, to those of us wedded to the sluggish death called a normal life, the highest concern one can bestow on another is the admonition to stay safe. That's said to me all the time ad nauseum. Canadians especially love to use that term, stay safe. Even my battle-line associates tell me that, as if safeguarding one's own life is some kind of bottom-line imperative. Staying safe was not the aim of my Uncle Bob at his testing moment, because men were dying all around him. Nor is it the goal of anyone to stay safe. Anyone who discovers that the secret of life lies not in ourselves but in others, especially when evil and war raises its head. The same people who puzzle over how Bob is the only one smiling in that final photograph of the Anna family, they're the same ones who comment with regret that Bob died needlessly by giving away his life jacket, as if it would have been possible for him to do anything else when faced with a man drowning from his wounds. The desperate selfishness of everyday life denies us the chance to become fully human that's thrust on us so starkly by war and conflict. And so far too many of us go away sad and troubled by the deeds of men like my Uncle Bob, never understanding the hidden drama, like those who encountered Jesus on his cross and saw only torture and bloodshed. How bit habitually do we struggle to shore up that which is unsalvageable, which is our own mortal life, and how we refuse to live for that one moment when we find our real purpose by giving up our lives for what is right and necessary. Perhaps Bob Annett was so radiant in that final family photo because he knew that his own special moment was fast approaching, and knowing his own measure and loving what he knew, he knew that he would not fail. As for the others in the photo, how could their sadness be anything but their knowledge that they could never share in Bob's great freedom? We do not live in a time of peace as much as we pretend to in our own little lives. The war in which we are all immersed is quickly clarifying everything with the same brutal truth and choice given to my Uncle Bob in the cold waters of the Atlantic. If we do not act, others will die. The particular happiness of the true warriors is that they devote every moment to the service of that deed, which is after all the essential thing. And for those who shrink back from such necessary action, there is no remedy and no ultimate happiness. A desperate moment like the present, hope does come to us, but always at a great cost. What awakens us are living examples of a true soul who shows in action that we are not measured by our capacity to be safe, but to be true, regardless of the sacrifice, to stay true. As for the ones who caused Bob's death and covered up their crime with more of it, time lessens nothing. That the British Navy could have been responsible for the death of my uncle and half of his shipmates should be no more surprising than was the decreed murder by the same empire and its churches of over 60,000 children in the Canadian death camps, they falsely call residential schools. And yet for official murder to have happened to those of our own blood by the very power for which they were fighting is the most damning part of this tale. When we play along as dutiful subjects of the crown, we're not supposed to be killed for it, but we are, all the time. And that recognition is the hidden gift within my uncle's blood offering, that it can awaken us to what we are a part of, and that it requires that we make a choice of what we are to serve. Perhaps that's the secret of Bob's parting smile in the family photo, a reflection of the special opportunity granted to every still-living heart that no tyrant can take from us and no cataclysm can undo. And then, in that sense, in closing, let me remind you of the words of a poem by William Wordsworth, The Happy Warrior, which applies to my uncle, to me, 
to any of us who've engaged in this battle to the death. He comprehends his trust and to the same keeps faithful with a singleness of aim and therefore does not stoop nor lie in wait for wealth or honors or for worldly state or mild concerns of ordinary life. But who, if he be called to face an awful moment to which heaven has joined great issues, good or bad for humankind, is as happy as a lover and attired with sudden brightness like a man inspired. If he must fall to sleep without his fame, he finds comfort in himself and in his cause, and will look. Mortal mist is gathering, draws his breath in confidence of heaven's applause. This is the happy warrior. This is whom every man in arms and every woman in arms should wish to be. Remember, friends, put into action if you're to survive this cataclysm. And not simply survive, but go down fighting, dying for the right purpose, and therefore, and thereby, reclaim everything. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Stay tuned again this week and live. See murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. Republicofkanata.org, especially for those patriots who must break away from this genocidal crown system. Republicofkanata.org under breaking news. Join the Republic. Get on board. Stay tuned for more. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. We thank you.